Welcome to another episode of The Workplace, the radio program about how to get into, get along, and get ahead at work, produced and presented by me, N.N.D. Every March, Women's History Month, here on The Workplace, we feature topics related to women and work. This year, in 2021, the stars lined up so that International Women's Day, the annual celebration of women and women's achievements on the 8th of March, coincided with Commonwealth Day commemoration of the Commonwealth of Nations, which is observed the second Monday in March every year. So we began the series this year with a two-part episode featuring author Lady Colin Campbell, who shared some tips on navigating the publishing industry successfully as a woman and work in the context of her book People of Colour and the Royals, published by Dynasty Press Limited. Midway through this year's Women's History Month series, this episode is titled Women, Art and Invisibility. And I am joined by Emma Edmondson, who is an artist and the founder of TOMA, the Other MA, an unaccredited postgraduate level art program, which is an alternative art education model designed to suit the everyday lives of 21st century artists by circumventing typical obstacles to accessing higher education, such as gender and ethnicity, age, cost disability and caring responsibilities. This year the theme for International Women's Day was Choose to Challenge and that is exactly what alternative art education models strive to do. Challenge the traditional constructs that limit women's ability to reach their full potential in the arts. Toma works with people fresh out of an undergraduate art degree. Those who do not have a formal art education whose instruction or learning in the arts has been interrupted but still want a route to entering contemporary critical thought, as well as those who have come to art later in life. The organization is particularly interested in women who have been concentrating on supporting a family or single parents who are just now finding time and support to commit further to their art practice. Please visit toma-art.com. And Toma is T-O-M-A. Emma, welcome to The Workplace. Tell us a bit about yourself. My name is Emma Edmondson. I'm an artist and organiser based in Southend-on-Sea in Essex. And in 2016, I set up The Other MA, also known as Toma, which is an alternative art school set up in response to hierarchies in accessing art education. So that could be money, time, geography, not having an art-specific language, or maybe having to care for others and not being able to access education because of that. So Toma is a postgraduate level unaccredited art course currently the only one like itself and at this level in Essex after all others were stopped by their host universities and our program runs much like a traditional model we have visiting artists workshops crits tutorials residencies and exhibitions but importantly the participants get to choose what they learn and who delivers it We've currently got 24 artists on the program and also run an art space in South End High Street based in the Royal Shopping Centre next to Poundland. And here we put on a program of exhibitions and free workshops. Also make my own work and teach at colleges, universities and schools, mainly on precarious contracts. You are the founder of this organisation, right? So tell us a bit about your role within Toma. I'm the founder. I set it up uh, in response to kind of my lived experiences and frustrations uh, at 
how unaccessible our education could be. And as part of that, my role is I kind of oversee everything, work directly with the participating artists, um, book people to come visit um, and plan exhibitions for the space. Let me deal with Poundland first. You said it's located next to Poundland. Tell us a bit about that. Why, why it's so important for you to let us know that. Yeah, I'm really passionate about bringing art to non-artists. You know, the art world traditionally is seen as a place, I suppose, steeped in hierarchy. And I think a lot of people, especially people that I've worked with when I'm teaching um, and kind of on the ground, so to speak, often find it quite challenging to enter gallery spaces and aren't always sure whether they're allowed to kind of access it. So I love being next to Poundland and shoppers kind of walking past and wandering in. Um, It's about blurring that line between artist and audience, really. I have to ask this. The art that's for sale in your studio or space or gallery, are they one pound? No. We should do a deal, shouldn't we? That's uh, maybe, yeah, maybe that's a future future marketing idea. All righty. <laughs> um, also, you deal with some quite big names, Sonia Boyce. When I was, you know, looking into you before, you know, we set up the interview and stuff, and I saw Sonia Boyce, I was like, okay, this was like, this is not a joke. Yeah, I mean, we've been we've been really lucky to have some amazing artists come and visit us and get involved in the program, in the education program. And I think, you know, these kind of artists are interested in working outside of the institution and working for these alternative spaces because they're frustrated by the systems that are in place within these institutions. You know, we're a lot more relaxed. You know, we all share lunch on the day when we might have uh, education, educational visit. It's very laid back and kind of uh, always trying to get rid of those student slash teacher hierarchies that possibly come within education. I'm featuring you this month in Women's History Month, March, because, you know, like when I spoke to you and I discovered like you set up this place, I just I just said, oh, my goodness, an artist and she's revolutionizing art and art space and, and the model oh my gosh you're like you're a living legend I think so um tell us what you're going (laughs) tell us what tell us what you're going to share with us today yeah of course so um I want to talk about gender disparity within the art world um and I suppose how women are kind of changing the way those hierarchies within the art world exist. I um, also want to reference uh, Felicity Allen's The Disoeuvre, um, a PhD text exploring why women might choose to take art later in life, something I've seen evidenced in people coming to Toma, and also these kind of alternative art space models and perhaps why they're more centered around women and the way that we practice art. So I was really intrigued by the part-time qualification approach to learning that you have set up to cater for women especially because frankly I was gobsmacked I only learned this somewhere around 2017 that art imitates life in that the hierarchy and structure that exists in the broader working world is also present in the art world and let me say here cue shock and horror because I had always thought because artists are creative and they think in different ways, I never expected the gender discrimination and, and, and you know, that disparity and inequality to also exist in the art world. So I was completely shocked. 
So um, let, talk a bit about that for us. Yeah, well, you know, absolutely. Historically, kind of those hierarchies that you've just set out there are embedded within the art world. I mean, when you look at traditional education and even these alternative education models, which I'm part of, you know, people people accessing it will be about 65% women and 35% men. However, you know, when you look at major London commercial galleries, it's about 70% men showing versus 35% women. So, you know, it is quite shocking, I think. And this disparity exists at various stages from education to middle management to senior management. Yeah, 100%. I mean, interestingly, I suppose women are more within administrative roles within the arts. So when you look at a gallery, you know, a lot of women will be working in those kind of, I suppose, uh, caring roles versus men who will be exhibiting more. And, you know, I suppose maybe that's something that women have been trained by society to do. You know, we um, we have continually been trained to kind of care and look after and possibly also maybe not to be so confident within the work that we make. Um, I, don't, I don't know whether you kind of agree with that or not. Well, I mean, I listen to the artists and, you know, if, you know, it's a recurring experience of the women artists and women who work in the arts. I have to go with what they tell me. So what are some of the ways in which women's labor is undervalued in the arts, you would say? Oh, this is a good question. I don't quite know how to answer that one. Um, we might. Well, have to, we could begin know. with um, notions that capitalism tacitly positions women's work as a sort of a natural resource. And, you know, the, this feminist scholar, um, Maria, is it? Mies or how, how do you pronounce it? Mise, do you know? Her argument about women's labor is considered, is thus considered freely available like air and water, <laughs> pretty much along the lines of what you were describing earlier about being socialized to do things like caring roles and responsibilities and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, women's invisible labor does hold up capitalism, you know, um, an invisible labor from our care work, from the fact that we might pick up the towels that have been left on the floor for a few days. If we're, you know, in a heteronormative um, relationship and we are kind of automated to do this uh, by society. So there's this amazing book called Who Made Adam Smith's Dinner? And if you don't know, not sure who Adam Smith is, I only recently learned he is kind of the godfather of contemporary economics, I suppose. And it's used as an example that, you know, Riley was writing all of these amazing economic theories, who made his dinner, his mum still made his dinner. <laughs> so that invisible labor of the woman, you know, supporting him with food and nourishment and care and that kind of, you know, regular nourishment, this unpaid labor, this invisible labor, supporting him to create these amazing economic theories actually when you said adam smith i was thinking is she talking because i'm you know we're talking about art here so i was wondering how come this economist comes into it i thought maybe it was another adam smith but that's an interesting tidbit that his mum was preparing his meals yeah mm -hmm. so i learned also that the art industry is rivaled only by domestic and care work when it comes to the most unpaid labor and mm. free labor and rampant exploitation of women is what keeps the culture sector going according at mm -hmm. least to the contemporary artist and essayist Hito Sterl. So I mean 
Can you explain and or elaborate on this? And what I want to know is, if this is true, what makes women continue to participate in and perpetuate the status quo? I suppose I'll, I'll respond to the second bit first and then go back to the first bit. So I think, you know, things are changing now for women. Women have definitely become more empowered over the past few years. And also, if you look at um, the Freelance Foundation research, which is freely available online, you know, they've been looking at the representation of female artists in Britain from 2017 to 2019. And you can see the changes there there's more of an even keel between women and men being represented in in non-commercial galleries which is good i touched upon the commercial galleries um before but you know maybe things are changing as well because women have been domestics of the art world per se for so long we've been in these administrative positions which are now becoming managerial positions so you know we are having more of a chance to kind of curate and program and decide what is happening you know for me personally um I was taught art at school and it was always very male and very white and I remember being really frustrated at school in my history of art lessons but I couldn't tell you know tell why until later and it was the realization that who I was being taught did not represent me and so you know I'm gonna whack out another quote here there's an amazing artist and researcher called called Marsha Bradfield, who has quoted someone else, but quotes herself by saying that admin is the new housework. So I think that's kind of an interesting thing to, to think about. What I also find interesting is even though women have been made to be invisible in the art world in terms of being artists themselves, or even that they are not at the forefront of exhibitions and, and all of that, the, the ironic thing is, even though the art world has been male-dominated up until very recently, even though it still is, but as you say, it's getting better. The funny thing is, all of these great works of art have always been of the female body. So, yeah. like, you know, it, it is really um, a paradox. You're keeping women out of art, but you're always painting their naked body everywhere for us to see all the time. Like, help me. <laughs> yeah well that's you know that's that's a, a very kind of um, iconic art essay you know and theory talking about the male gaze um, and the idea that um, these women were painted by men and for men you know they were ob objectified um, as these things to be devoured in this kind of passive way I suppose so yeah I mean I would yeah give the male gaze a google and you will go down a whole rabbit hole of um, interesting kind of art theory and history to do with that but it's yeah it's an interesting space to explore. All right, let's turn now to Felicity Allen's The Deserver. Tell us about it. Uh, tell us who she is and a bit more about her work. And, and you say it's a book, right? I haven't read it. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing mini book. Um, and I would say go and get it if you're interested in this kind of stuff. It's on um, a small publishing label, also women run by Sharon Kivland called Mab Bibliotheque. Sharon is another amazing artist, researcher, human. And Felicity Allen, also known as Dr. Flick. I mean, I don't want to kind of put words in her mouth, but I've, I've met her. She is an amazing artist and educator. She had lots of kind of educational, caring behind the scenes roles 
at the Tate, for example, and spaces like that. And this PhD was published in 2016. And the disoeuvre is kind of the opposite of the oeuvre, which is seen as something that the male artist genius might have. You know, all these men that were painting these women would have an oeuvre of work, but women would have a disoeuvre because we would spend a lot of our lives in these supporting administrative roles within the art world and then come to our oeuvre at a later stage of our life, perhaps, you know, when we're a bit more secure financially, maybe when we've built up that confidence um, that we had been so trained not to have by society. I wanted to touch on when you talk about like women artists performing sort of like a caring role or function within the arts and so there's a lot of talk about effective labor and this is the unremunerated emotion and care and all of the unremunerated labor that is put into any job and this exists in the art world as well. But it also exists in a variety of jobs and sectors, including professions, such as like law. So what's the big deal? Why should there be any greater attention to or conversation around this when it comes to art and artists? I don't think um, there should be greater attention given um, just because it's art and artists. Like I 100% believe, you know, that this invisible labor can exist anywhere. And I do believe it is very gendered as we've kind of discussed um so you know i'm i'm a massive uh, believer in being able to make this invisible labor this emotional labor kind of more visible in a way across uh, the sectors i mean i'm interested to hear about it within law how does i mean yeah tell, can you tell me more about that or so for example even even if you take gender out of it so it was about this idea that uh, when you're making art as an artist, let's say you're, you're, you're doing some pottery, for example, you're making a little pot, for example, before you actually get to the physical bit where you are molding the pot, mm. before there is this work and stuff you're doing where you're conceptualizing, you're thinking, you're feeling, you're watching the sunset for inspiration, all of that, <laughs> all of that goes into your work that is not really classified as work and if you translate that say to an art gallery for example and you think of um, the invisible work or input of women in those spaces we don't see like so as you said you know the women are mostly made to welcome the guests welcome the, the 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 gallery visitors and and all of that stuff you know you have to put on the smile even though your shoes hurting and that kind of thing in <laughs> law for example even if we don't take gender into account if a solicitor or a barrister or someone is working on a case while they're having their breakfast or having a shower they're thinking about the case before they're actually working yeah. on the case do you see what i mean so to me this yeah. this extends to all jobs, various professions and so on. So I just wondered why artists, why, why we should, why does the conversation have to be any more pronounced or involved or whatever you want to say when it comes to artists? Because basically everyone is experiencing this. This is my point. 
Yeah, hun- I mean, 100%. I 100%, you know, agree with you. I think I suppose, um, you know, art, especially when we're thinking about conceptual art and contemporary art is really steeped um, often within uh, critical theory and art theory. So, you know, feminists within the 70s, for example, Sylvia Frederici talking about wages for housework um, and other kind of feminist thinkers um, around this time were, were talking a lot about invisible labour, about this kind of, you know, labour that we're discussing today. And I suppose artists were reading this. So maybe that's why it has become more discussed and more debated and more prominent within the art world, because people were reading about it and then making work in response to it. Okay, that's great. All right. So now that we've heard all of the problems, what are the solutions? And of course, this is where the burgeoning alternative art space model catering to women and their needs comes about. And of course, you are like one of the pioneers in this field. I, I just, I can't tell you how excited I am about about this, that you just went off and just set up this this like this model well you know I, I there were plenty that are also doing similar to me um and I uh, borrowed and was inspired by all of these other spaces as well so for example alt mfa within london school of the damned open school east you know lots of amazing fantastic alternative art school models happening as well so these alternative spaces seem to mainly be set up by women I mean, I haven't got any data to quantify that, but I suppose maybe the it's the kind of ethos um, that goes with this. So, for example, specifically uh, with Toma, we meet at the evenings and the weekends. So most of our artists, which are mainly women, you know, work full time. So they need to be able to access something in the evening or they have caring responsibilities, which means that the evening is easier for them to get childcare. Same for the weekend as well. But, you know, these models are transparent not-for-profit centered um, and they circulate around conservation and community which are I think two things central to kind of women's being forming communities and alliances to survive and most importantly though you know these spaces are not just for women and when I say women I include trans women non-binary these are spaces of care and consideration most importantly that can benefit anyone living within capitalism. Tell us a bit about the model of uh, how your established artists come in and work with aspiring artists I was really intrigued by that concept the residencies or, or whatever you call them yeah absolutely so you know we have we have visiting artists they are picked by the participants on the program um so i i'm administrator <laughs> much like we've been talking about and i will reach out to them to get them to come and visit and i always always kind of hand the baton to the visiting artists to get them to do what they want with um the group and what's really nice about that is a conversation and an exchange um starts to happen about what the group might want what the artists might want to bring as well and so I suppose you know it's trying to set up this um, organic natural space for conversation and community forming and that's yeah the pri- the priority behind it really so logistically they come and visit for a day pre-covid and hopefully later in the year when it's safe to do so and we'll often share lunch um, and maybe hang out afterwards as well so really yeah just trying to just trying to engage with them as humans um, without that kind of teacher student hierarchy but I thought the artists who come on board I thought they are with you for a year or something like that isn't that how it works that's what I 
thought no no not all, not always so we will have um artists who come to visit so we have the participants who are with us for a year but then we have the visiting artists uh yeah who come and visit us every so often but the artist participants are with us for 12 months i mean with the current group um they've been with us since november because uh i wanted to make sure that they were supported during covid and during this crisis so we had a made for online program taking place to support them during this time once you take a new cohort of participants the participants get together and discuss who are the artists they want to come on board is that how it works yeah 100% they will make a list of who they want to come and visit each of them will make a list of 3 and then they will also make a, a list of workshops and vote on those workshops and also you know think about things like exhibitions like you said residencies as well we have a pool of tutors artist tutors um who were with us for the year and they get tutorials too but you know the program evolves really through that discussion and it's kind of very lucid i suppose and not really stuck which i think is really important because something about institutions i found from working within them and institutional education is it's really hard to shift working practices within an institution but in a smaller model like toma it's kind of easier to be more slippery and eel like i call it and be able to change and be responsive as well you know we're living in a fast society and i think that idea of being able to respond and change and transform um is really important so- So is there no way if an artist heard about what you're doing and the artist wants to get on the program that can't ever happen can that happen Yeah 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 no absolutely like each well each year usually we take on a new cohort of artists so because the current group of uh, are still with us we're still supporting them um through this kind of crisis time through covid we will probably do a new open call for 12 new artists um probably at the end of this year now so that takes place there will be a simple online application um we're not interested in people's CVs it's really about the work and why you want to access an alternative as this so that is one of the two questions that the that we will ask artists wanting to access the program you know why don't you want to go to a traditional school why do you want to access this alternative and finally before we close you have uh, an interesting space and there is something um intriguing or new for me around the concept and how the space is run would you like to share that with us we have um uh this space this exhibition space and the way that um we run it is we've set up a time bank scheme there so that basically means um there's a space upstairs and it means that um people can come and put on tester exhibitions can film stuff can photograph stuff and in exchange for using that space upstairs they then invigilate and host the exhibition space downstairs which is open to the public so we're really interested in exploring these kind of alternative economies within the toma structure and seeing how this time bank exchange can go forward. I mean definitely, you know, pre-covid this was something that worked really well and we'd have people coming and 
invigilating, looking after the space downstairs for maybe six weekends in a row. And then they'd use the space upstairs for those six days, put on a mini show, document it, all of those things. Because that's the one thing that's really hard to get as an artist is actually space to exhibit work, to show work, to test out these ideas. There's not much space around to do that with. Tell us anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up. We've got an exhibition coming in May called Precarious Straits, which uh, I think I'm going to be talking about again soon. So I'm working on a recent commission from Focal Point Gallery uh, in South End, looking to bring the community together, together to explore land rights through making with clay and policy change. And I've also recently been co-commissioned by ArtQuest to set up a new artist-run model with my artist colleague Lou Williams called Dog Ear, exploring accessible publishing and dog toy sculptures. So this, this idea was born from COVID, if that's such a thing, a way to say such a thing, and kind of thinking about ways to bring art and contemporary critical thought into people's homes while galleries are shut, really, and sidetracking that gallery system that has left out women and non-binary people for so, so long. When you say it was it came into being because of COVID, do, do you mean because people were just so bored at home doing nothing, they came up with the idea or what? <laughs> well, okay, so yeah, we came up with the idea and I suppose there's two reasons why we came up with it in response to COVID. So one one of them is people need to play more um, and people need to get outside more. And one of those ways is through walking dogs, quite simply, but also galleries galleries are shut, right? There is no other way to access art at the moment, other than it coming to your home or you being able to experience it online. So we want to bring art directly to people's homes. Please check out the Toma website, www.toma-art.com and my own personal website, uh, www.emmaedmondson.com. And there's a downloadable text I wrote a couple of years ago, if you want to it. Emma Edmondson, thanks so much for being with us here on The Workplace. Thank you so much. And that's it for another episode of The Workplace, the radio program about how to get into, get along, and get ahead at work, produced and presented by me, N and D. Midway through this year's Women's History Month series, I was speaking with Emma Edmondson, an artist and founder of Toma, the other MA, an unaccredited postgraduate-level art program which is focused on increasing access by circumventing issues such as age, time and caring responsibilities, which operate as entry barriers in traditional art institutions. Following on from the themes covered in this episode, next time we'll continue this year's Women's History Month series with the winner of this year's Max Mara Prize for Women, Emma Talbot, who started exhibiting her works later in life. The aim of the Max Mara Prize is to support and promote female UK-based artists, enabling them to develop their potential with a gift of time and space. And please stay tuned to The Workplace and connect with me using hashtag WorkplaceNND. And thank you so much for listening. As always, it's been a pleasure being in your company. Till next time, keep finding new and better ways to keep working.